Hello and welcome to the latest Economics and Business podcast. We've taken a little break over the past two months given current circumstances, but we're back with a very special episode to mark the retirement of our Chief Economist, John Hawksworth, who was retiring after 34 years with the firm. Now, because of COVID-19, we're obviously not in the studio today, but recording this remotely from our homes. So I'll say that I'm virtually joined today by John Hawksworth and Jing Tiao, who works closely with John and our UK economics team, and who will be joining me today to help interview John. We're going to use this opportunity to get John's reflections on the UK economy over the past four decades, the key lessons learnt, and his thoughts on the long-term prospects for the UK economy. Of course, we are now also deep in the COVID-19 crisis, and we'll also be getting John's views on what this means for the UK and global economy. But before we do that, Let's take a look back first. So, John, I understand that you first studied economics at A-level in 1979. So you've seen the economy transition through many phases over the past four decades. Can you first start off by reminding us what the UK economy looked like back then and the key challenges it's faced since then? Well, I think in the 1970s, um, the government was really trying to grapple with what we call stagflation. We had both very high inflation and rising unemployment, uh, particularly in the, the middle 70s uh, and also later towards the end of the 70s and the early 80s. Uh, and th- this was linked on the inflation side to things like the oil price globally going up very fast as, as OPEC sort of uh, pushed uh, restricted supply and pushed up prices, um, as well as things like um, trade unions. Uh, seeking to make up for the, the increased cost of living by pushing up wages. So you've got a wage price spiral. And to some extent, this also led to people being priced out of jobs and higher unemployment. Um, and so generally, the 70s were a very volatile time um, after a period in the 50s and 60s where the economy had been going through a kind of global uh, golden age, as people referred to it, of relative stability and relatively rapid growth in the UK and the US and Western Europe and Japan. The 70s was a much more difficult time. And that posed real challenges for policymakers uh, because the traditional approach when unemployment went up is that the government would cut taxes or increase government spending to try and get people back to work, uh, as they had done back in the 1930s Great Depression. But they, the problem with that is that when inflation was high, that was just further stoking inflationary pressures. So there was a real uh, challenge to conventional economic uh, wisdom, if you like, uh, going back to Keynes in the 1930s, and people were trying to find a new solution. Um, so that's really what, when I was first studying economics at A-level or at university in the early 80s, everyone was grappling with. And there were different schools of thought as to how you should approach this. Uh, the Keynesian school, which was still looking back to the the old methods of boosting the economy through fiscal policy and trying to control inflation through incomes policy, basically putting a, a limit on wage rises. Um, and the sort of monetarist school, which uh, was emerging under influence of Milton Friedman and some other economists, um, and which had a big influence on the, the policies of the Thatcher government and the Reagan government in the US. In the, in the early 1980s. And those really led through to some quite, uh, quite difficult sort of policy debates about how you should actually go about dealing with these issues. Um, and I think very much the shift, the, the, the policy shifted within government towards 
trying to emphasize on controlling inflation by being rather tighter on fiscal policy, sometimes by raising interest rates. Um, and I think that did have some benefits in reducing inflation, um, but it did also lead to a big rise in unemployment in the 1980s. I mean, unemployment went above 3 million in the UK and stayed there right up until 1986. So there was a lot of difficult challenges around that time about how you deal with these twin problems of inflation and unemployment. And that really tended to dominate the debate on the macroeconomic side. John, do you see any parallels between what's happening in the post-70s era that followed the golden age with today? So the global financial crisis, again, following the nice period, um, and you know we're currently in a period of low productivity recovery as well. I think there is, in some ways, it's a bit different because inflation isn't the problem it was. The big problem then was that you have these twin problems of inflation and unemployment. Now, I think if you look at the global financial crisis, that was more of a demand shock. So it was tending to push inflation down and unemployment up and growth down. And so it was more straightforward that the way to respond to that was to try to have a more relaxed uh, monetary and fiscal policy, at least in the short term. Um, uh, although that then led, left a big budget deficit to deal with. So it was a slightly different environment because we didn't we haven't recently had the problems with inflation uh, that we had back in the 70s and 80s and so uh, the policy response although though there have been challenges um it's been a little bit different i think in those days it was always trying to sort of balance those two things that was particularly hard um so i think i think one of the things i would say is that each sort of recession you know each crisis has been different and you you need to, to approach them in a in a way that doesn't just repeat the sort of recipes of the past. There may be some lessons you can learn, but you also need to be very flexible. And that's also very true in the current sort of crisis with COVID. You know, that's a very different type of shock again from anything we've experienced in any of our lifetimes. So you can't just sort of roll out uh, exactly the same policies as before. There may be some similarities, but you, you always need to be flexible to the, the specific circumstances that you're facing. Hmm. And... I mean, John, you know, you have no doubt lived through some major policy shifts as well as, you know, major shifts and trends over your long career with us as well. What what do you think, you know, stands out for you? Well, I think in the 80s, I think certainly in the UK and I think also in the US and some other countries, uh, as well as the macroeconomic debate, there were there was changes in if you like the way the economy was was run, there was a, a move to a less uh, a more consumer-led and more marketized economy. You had privatizations of state enterprises, which were previously you know, in the UK, a very important part of the economy. Those were gradually sold off. Um, and generally, the, there was a different approach of allowing the market to, to operate more to de deregulate financial services, which made it much easier for people to borrow money, for example, to buy a house. So that led to a big boom in house prices in the the 1980s um and so i think that there, were, there was a, a big shift there uh, and that possibly in some areas led to a more efficient economy uh but it also led to a more unequal economy so there was a huge rise in income inequality in the 1980s in the in the uk and the us which has never really been reversed i mean in the uk you could argue that since about 1990 inequality has gone up and down it hasn't necessarily such, such a strong trend but that big shift in the 80s 
has never been reversed. So again, there's a kind of a trade-off between, on the one hand, economic efficiency, but also a sense of uh, social justice or, or fairness. And uh, that was one of the other sort of big issues in the 1980s. Uh, if you go forward to the 1990s and beyond, um, I think the big sh shift was really towards globalization. Um, you know, I think with the fall of the uh, Iron Curtain at the end of the 80s, early 90s, with the collapse of the former Soviet Union, and also with China adopting a much more open economy, uh, open approach towards the world, being being much more engaged with the world trade system, and trying to make its economy more market orientated. And India also at the same time opening up to the world, uh, perhaps a little behind China, but following the same sort of course. Um, we we have seen that you know, globalization's really taken hold, and I think that's that's been associated with the spread of supply chains across the world economy. Um, and that I think has brought you know quite a lot of benefits. You know, if nothing else, probably a couple of billion people in in Asia and some other emerging economies have been are pulled out of poverty by that process. Um, and it's also meant that there's been much greater productive capacity in the global economy, places like China and uh, former Soviet Union, which are now integrated into the world economy and therefore increased the labor supply available to make stuff that's tended to make things cheaper. Uh, but it's also posed some problems for uh, some workers in, in advanced economies like the US and Europe who, who are now facing, were facing much greater competition for their jobs. And, in some cases, um, therefore facing some hit to their their employment or their, their living standards from that. So there was a, a balance of positive and negative. Overall, I think it was probably a positive, but there were some people who lost out from it. And, and so that that really was also associated as well as globalization with uh, financialization. There was a big expansion of financial markets that really began in the 80s with deregulation and continued through the, the 90s and right up to 2007. Um, and th this basically meant that there was a big expansion of things like ability to borrow, not just for households, but for companies and, and more generally in financial markets. And again, that tended to, to be supportive of growth and you know, made some people very wealthy, but it also you know, turned out, certainly in retrospect, to have built up a lot of vulnerabilities in the system with excessive borrowing and people taking on risks that they didn't fully understand through things like credit derivatives. And so this whole process of globalization and financialization, while it brought many benefits, that did, you know, certainly in retrospect, also bring some problems. And those really manifested themselves in a fairly spectacular way in 2008 with the global financial crisis, the collapse of uh, some leading banks and uh, other problems you know, that then spread out to the rest of the economy because with a, a much weaker banking sector, that also led to much reduced lending and a, lot, a loss of uh, confidence across the economy as a whole and therefore quite a deep recession most of the major economies. So again, you know, I think there's been a process as always with economies of cycles. Uh, you've got these developments that are initially quite positive and seem very, very good, but very often they do also bring vulnerabilities and then sooner or later there's a sort of reckoning, uh, a new crisis or recession, and then things have to reset themselves again. Given the scarring that so many countries experienced after the financial crisis, you've got increasing trade protectionism and Brexit, low trust in institutions and governments. What do you think the future holds for globalization? Will we retreat to more regionalization? Does COVID accelerate that? 
Well, I think certainly since um, since the financial crisis, you know, previously we'd seen global trade and global investment flows grow much faster than global GDP um, as the world economy became more open. And, and since the financial crisis, those have really they haven't so much fallen, but they've been fairly stuck at the similar levels. So we haven't seen that further rising globalization. It's been very difficult to do any kind of global trade deal through the WTO. There's been some regional deals within Asia and some other other parts of the world, but it's been very difficult to get big deals between the US and Europe or the US and Asia uh, over the line politically. Um, and certainly there's been a turn over the last few years, you know, the US towards a more protectionist sort of America first approach, uh, which is a bit reminiscent of what happened after the Great Depression in the 1930s, where there was a rise of protectionism, and that wasn't good for economic growth. Um, and it was only really after the Second World War that you, you got back to a, a moved back towards a free trading system um, that actually was more positive for growth. So you know, eventually, I do think that the you know, the benefits of globalization will reassert themselves and there will be some, some move back in that direction. But it could be a long process. And obviously, the COVID crisis, you know, by closing borders, by perhaps getting people to think in a rather nationalistic way in some cases, as will be. You know, won't be too helpful for that in the, over the next few years. But you know, the lesson really of the last 500 years is that economic development over that period has been very much driven by trade and investment and ideas and technologies flowing across borders. And um, in the long run, that tends to raise living standards for almost everyone. But in the short term, there are winners and losers. And uh, you know, I think some of the losers can have quite a lot of political influence and that can slow things down. And we've seen that recently in some countries, um, you know, as, as been, there's been a backlash against globalization, um, perhaps understandably so. Um, so there's going to be a tricky period, I think, over the next um, you know, five to 10 years. Um, but I am hopeful that in the longer term um, benefits of globalization will mean that people will turn back in that direction. But it, it won't be a necessarily a quick or easy process. So today we're obviously speaking under quite unusual circumstances with the outbreak of COVID-19 and the current lockdown situation. The world economy is facing unprecedented challenges. And this is obviously a, an entirely unique um, economic crisis, but are there any lessons that we can learn from past economic challenges to help us navigate this one, do you think? Well, I think there's an opportunity to learn from the global financial crisis, the one thing that worked there is when governments and central banks really said that we'll do whatever is necessary to stabilize the economy and financial markets. Um, for example, Mario Draghi, the president of the European Central Bank, you know, really sort of made a very firm statement on that that helped to end the Eurozone crisis. And I think governments have learned from that and central banks that they, they do need to make big interventions in fiscal policy and monetary policy through things like asset purchases to really um, get the message across to the economy and to financial markets that they're serious about supporting the economy. Um, and I think they've actually done a pretty good job so far in doing that. But at the same time, I think when it comes to the detail of what they have to do, they can't just take a recipe off the shelf because this is a very unique crisis, as you say. Uh, we've never been in a situation where got governments have had to shut down whole swathes of the economy before, uh, certainly not in modern times. And so you also need to come up with innovative ideas like furloughing scheme for, for staff um, that, that haven't been tried before. So it's a mixture of 
some messages from the past, but also being adaptable uh, and coming up with innovative new solutions, uh, both for governments and same would apply for businesses. Do you think this will open up a new debate about the role of fiscal policy? Clearly, with governments throwing the kitchen sink and more at the crisis to support the economy, the fiscal rule has fallen by the wayside. Plus, we may be nearing the limits for monetary policy. Do you think there will be a bigger role for fiscal policy in the future? Well, I think that to some extent, obviously, government debt has gone up and the budget deficit will obviously be extremely high this year, uh, probably more than 10% of GDP. Um, but I think as the crisis passes, the economy recovers and the emergency measures uh, come to an end, then I think the deficit will fall. Um, and I think in the meantime, the Bank of England, by buying up government bonds, can uh, avoid the big rise in, in interest rates on government debt. So I think in the short term, the situation is sustainable. In the longer term, I think, though, looking two, three years ahead, when the economy has made a full recovery, then I think you probably might need to consider some measures to address the fiscal deficit. Um, I don't think there's much appetite for more austerity on spending now, if anything, the opposite. People want to spend more on areas like health and social care and boost the wages of key workers who've really shown their value in the crisis. So I think at some point you may need to consider options of higher taxes to reduce the deficit. But uh, again, definitely not yet. Definitely that's two, three years or more in the future once, once the economy is fully recovered. What this crisis has shown as well is that different regions have been affected differently by COVID-19. Um, and when you add in the impacts of Brexit and the existing North-South divide, um, you know, these trends might have exacerbated regional inequalities. What's the best mechanism for rebalancing growth in the UK? I mean, it's certainly possible. I mean, the North-South divide is a very long-standing thing, dates back at least to the 1980s when uh, particularly financial de deregulation boosted the role of London as a global financial centre, while the, the early 80s recession really hit the industrial areas in the north very hard. I was living in Bradford at the time, like many people after university that came to London. Um, so I think that there is, there is that factor. Uh, so it isn't going to be easy to address these regional inequalities, but I think it is important to, to try to do so through investment in transport infrastructure, um, other, other infrastructure, trying to build up local research hubs where universities and businesses can work together on promising new technologies uh, and boosting skills levels uh, in, the, in the regions. Um, so, but I think we have to be realistic and say that that's a long-term program and probably take you know, many decades to, to bring, bring benefits, just as it took many decades for the current North-South divide to open up. But hopefully, once the current crisis is passed, the government can get back to that levelling up agenda, which it uh, which is set out before the crisis started. Now, let's end by looking to the future and putting COVID-19 aside. Bill, what are some of the key opportunities that the UK and the global economy face, do you think? Well, I think one key opportunity is really around technology. I mean, technology has been what's driven the rise in global living standards since the Industrial Revolution 250 years ago uh, by boosting productivity and so wages. Um, and we've seen a lot of very interesting developments in technology around smartphones, AI, nanotechnology, biotechnology uh, over the last 10, 10 years or more. Um, but it hasn't really yet translated into higher productivity growth, which is a bit of a puzzle. 
Uh, maybe businesses have preferred not to take the risk of that investment. But hopefully um, um, this crisis could actually be a stimulus to businesses looking at the opportunities for, for investing in these technologies. Um, some sectors might become more automated with reduced employment, and that will potentially allow people to move into other sectors that still require the human touch, like health and social care and other areas, um, particularly if wages can rise in those sectors. So I think technology has got the potential to boost growth in the UK, also globally uh, in emerging economies in Asia and uh, longer term Africa, um, particularly if you can return to, uh, to an environment where there's more open uh, global trade and investment. Um, this won't happen overnight, but again, as a long-term prospect looking to future decades, you know, I can still be cautiously optimistic that we can get back on that track uh, once this crisis has passed. Well, many thanks, John. This has been such an interesting discussion and really great to be able to look back on the UK's economic history as well as to the future. And we wish you all the best for your retirement. And thank you all for listening. I hope everyone's keeping safe and well. Please do subscribe to our Economics in Business podcast channel. And for more information on the potential economic and business implications of COVID-19, please head to pwc.co.uk forward slash COVID-19 for more information. Mm -hmm.